I'm Joe Devine and welcome to Whiteboard Football Extra. Uh, Today I'm joined by Alex Stewart. We set out to discuss Swansea's tactics, uh, in particular how they managed a goalless draw with Tottenham a couple of weeks back, although we did tangent rather abruptly into discussing the two Manchester clubs as well, who currently seem to be the front runners for the uh, the league at this early stage. So all of that and a little bit more to come. Um, Also, I'd like to remind everyone that as of November the 1st, UMaxit Football will be changing its name to TIFO. Uh, That includes the YouTube channel, the website, social media, etc. If you're already following uh, on those channels, don't worry, you don't need to do anything. It just helps to be aware that the transition is happening. Um, And also, this podcast will be following suit and becoming the TIFO Football Podcast. So bear that in mind when you're downloading new episodes and uh, vigorously suggesting it to your friends, as I know you all do. In the Swansea team, uh, Tammy Abraham's height offered them a way out through long balls when they played against Spurs. How important... Uh, Alex is having a big striker like that to beating a team who who are playing like Tottenham. I think having a big striker has two major benefits. Firstly, it means that if you're seeking to clear the ball hurriedly against a team that press as Spurs do, then it gives you an option of lumping it long and potentially retaining possession. Um, and you can see from the way that Abraham drops quite deep. He's he's coming into the almost the sort of middle of the park or or between the middle and the edge of the penalty area quite a lot because he's trying to get onto clearances from the goalkeeper or the centre backs. So rather than just aimlessly punting it up um and and inviting an attack again, if you've got someone that you can play it to, you you have a chance of retaining possession. I think the other important point is that Spurs are a side that like to build from the back and whose centre-backs pass the ball a lot. So if you are playing it to them in the air and forcing them to contest aerial balls, you're not giving it to them in a way that they can easily control and restart uh, an attack through passing centre-backs. I mean, it's not the only way that you can do it, uh, and... It's also not necessarily the case that having a big striker is only useful against teams like Spurs. I think there's a lot to be said for generally having a kind of significant aerial threat. And you can see that you know Manchester United have used Lukaku and Fellaini in this way uh, successfully against a number of teams. But, but there are certainly benefits. Well, is it fair to say then that if you are playing a team that, you know, generally speaking, would be accepted as a higher quality uh, than, than your team? that it might actually be useful to have a striker who has a certain style, whether it is, you know, in Tammy Abraham's case, that, you know, he's he's very tall and, 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 and good at bringing the ball down, retaining possession. Or I'm thinking also of players like Jamie Vardy, who's not the tallest, but is, is very quick and can make darting runs. Uh, what I'm saying is, rather than being, you know, a player who's who's very good and, and you know, is, is good in every area, does it make sense to have one very important skill or one specific skill which can unsettle a defence like Tottenham's? I think 
the key to managing tactics is looking at how the opposition do stuff. So Jamie Vardy, for example, he's very quick. He's excellent at playing off the shoulder of the last defender. That's particularly effective when you've got, as uh, Leicester did in the 2015-16 season, a player like Drinkwater who can play these long penetrating passes. Vardy can break off the shoulder and follow those in. So against a team that plays a high defensive line, that's particularly beneficial. Against a team with maybe slightly smaller ball-playing centre-backs, having a big, strong striker can also be useful. But I think what you're always trying to do as a, or what I assume you're always trying to do as a football coach, because I'm not actually a football coach, is to find what the opposition strengths are and mitigate them yeah. and what the opposition weaknesses are and to uh, exploit, them. exploit them. So, you know, you might see a high defensive line. If, if you're the opposition coach, you might see your high defensive line as a strength because it allows you to compress space, it allows you to press the ball, it allows you to dictate where in the pitch the game is played. But the opposition to you might see that high defensive line as a weakness if they have a striker who's capable of playing against it. If you've got Andy Carroll up front, then a high defensive line isn't going to you know, be particularly something you can exploit because... You're, you don't have a striker who's particularly mobile and you have one who benefits best when you're able to, to play crosses from quite deep positions. I suppose it's quite a good way of categorising coaches as well because you know, if we're being slightly unfair then you might suggest that Jose Mourinho is someone who maybe his first thought might be what are the strengths of the opposition you know, rather than what are their weaknesses, what can we exploit. You know, I think he's potentially more adaptive than some other coaches a bit like you know maybe maybe this is harsh to say of, of Arsene Wenger who seems to be uh trying something a little bit different of late but for a long time you could say that Wenger wasn't in the slightest bit adapted and, and, and wanted to play Arsenal's football every game whereas Jose Mourinho I suppose um to a certain degree sets up to to negate the strengths of the opposition slightly more than some other managers yeah I'd, I'd agree with that absolutely and I think it's a really interesting I suppose it's it's how you want to categorise that because you could look at Mourinho and say, and his reputation took a bit of a, a battering in that last um, kind of part of a season at Chelsea. Mm. And then even last season at United, he wasn't exactly winning plaudits for anything. But I think the, the United team that are playing now are playing exceptionally well because his style seems to be reactive in the sense that he is very adept at identifying what the opposition do well and do badly and taking advantage of that, that often is categorised as being defensive coaching. Whereas a manager like Wenger, who seems wedded largely to a particular system, which has you know really engaging aspects to its attacking play, of course, but it seems like that kind of coaching is categorised as proactive, is categorised as attacking, when in actual fact, the way that Mourinho attempts to take control of in-game situations by getting his players to do certain things, to me that is a form of proactivity, even if it's often manifested with, you know, say, 
matching up two left-backs ostensibly to, to combat a right winger as he did with Inter in the treble season against Messi. It's, you know, that it's kind of how you read that situation and, and how you want to to um, to explain it in terms of a kind of wider narrative of, well, Mourinho is this sort of negative defensive guy, therefore that's what he's doing. Actually, you could very easily argue that he's forcing the, op- the opposition to, to change the way they play, to change the way they attack, and that is proactivity. Yeah, and, for, and we've said on this podcast before that you know you can't really separate attack and defence anyway they're all part of the same uh, system so to you know to suggest that one is more heavily weighted than the other or that you know one can exist independently of the other doesn't really make any sense anyway no i think that the the best teams are a synthesis of attack and defence and the very best teams uh are ones that that very quickly transition from one to the other using the same players mm mm well, that's, that seems to describe uh, the current Man United team. <laughs> I, I think Man United have been hugely impressive this season. Let's take a, a slight tangent. Um, and the reason for listeners, the reason that we d- tend not to talk about um, current events in the Premier League is because we release this podcast on a Monday morning, but it's quite often recorded before the weekend. Um, so obviously uh, the results are all going to change. Um, at the minute, Manchester City have just come off the back of, I think, three games where they've scored five goals or more, um, and they look incredibly impressive as well. Um, and as it stands, I think United and City are sort of clear, slightly at the top of the league on the same points. It looks, you know, at the moment like it might be that that might be the main rivalry for for, for the year. What what do you what do you make of it? What are you, what are your initial thoughts? And also, like me, I hope that you find it interesting that they're two, you know very different styles uh, that are both you know existing in teams doing very well in the league that's quite nice to see yeah i think it's i think it's really interesting um particularly to have seen the mainstream press go in pretty hard on both of those managers last season um for you know not getting to grips with things Mourinho being a spent force guardiola never having been as good as anybody thought he was um, which is clearly a ridiculous statement. Um, and now all of a sudden you've got these two teams that, like you say, are playing very differently. I mean, the the, the attacking intent of Manchester City is extraordinary. And we've looked in videos um, already this season about just how many men they get forward of the ball, how they're effectively playing only one really defensively minded midfielder uh, at all in their system and their other two central midfielders are basically recast attacking midfielders. Then on the other hand, you've got United playing what is in some ways quite a conventional 4 2 3 1. Um but you know pushing the fullbacks high, using players like Fellaini really intelligently, um having bought a striker who is absolutely on fire. Um which you know, I, th- I think the acquisitions have been good for them this season, and also I think credit to the defence. Uh, I mean, obviously De Gea is and has been a superb goalkeeper pretty much the entire time he's been in the Premier League. But seeing Phil Jones particularly coming back into form um, when he was pretty much a laughing stock, you know, a season or two ago. Yeah. It's an extraordinary uh, turnaround, isn't it? It's it's a huge turnaround, um, and it it makes for a, an exhilarating 
uh, league situation, and 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 both teams are a pleasure to watch for different reasons, and, mm. and that can only be good for the league as a whole. Well, two things I think. Firstly, uh, it's interesting to talk about Phil Jones because I think he's an example of not only a player who's grown in confidence as a result of a new coach and as a result of uh, why I assume is a, is a positive feeling around the ground and you know a number of wins in a row, but also. Uh, it, his 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 playing in the team, I have no doubt, is also as a result of the fans' growing confidence, um, and in Mourinho, especially in what the team is capable of. I think the atmosphere at Old Trafford has really changed this season, and I think uh, confidence is a, is a big part of it. You can see, what, you know, when it sort of disappeared over the last few years into the vacuum, um, was throwing a lot of negativity and a lot of concern, and you know. Yeah, ne- negativity generally. Whereas now that it's filled up with confidence again, I think that it's really benefiting all of those players, and in some cases, like Jones players, who you thought probably wouldn't uh, return to this level. Um, and then the other thing to say on Manchester City is that I've not seen too much of them, but but when I have watched them, Leroy Sana just looks. Oh. He, he he just he's one of those players, and, I, and it's funny. I talked to Seb last week about this. Uh, um, well, not this specifically, but we talked about Lionel Messi. And when he's going to retire, and we talked about what makes Lionel Messi such a special player, and I'm not comparing Leroy Sana and Messi for, for for a moment, but what Leroy Sana does to me when I watch him do stuff with the football is like very very few other players. If you you know like he's he's just so scintillating to watch. Yeah, I I think they've got extraordinary attacking talent in in that side, obviously, and it's it's been really interesting to see. Uh, Aguero come back and and so far, you know, per ninety, Aguero is actually performing better than he has at any other stage in his Premier League career, season by season. Um, mm. I for me, it's Kevin De Bruyne. Um, he's just grown into, I would say, the best central midfielder in the league. His ability to to control games. Uh, is he a bit Paul? Is he a bit like Paul Scholes, or am I just uh, drawing comparisons where they shouldn't be? <laughs> for for what possible reason might uh-huh, you be doing uh-huh, that? Uh-huh. Um, I I think I think his ability to to switch the direction of play through long passing, but also to generate forward momentum through quick interchanges, and 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 if you have a look at you know the fact that. He's often playing alongside David Silva as well, who is an extraordinarily talented footballer as well. You know, um, there is definitely something of that. You know, Skulls could do both. Skulls could stop, take a moment and and find particularly wide players with a ball that probably nobody else could see. The sort of passes that Steven Gerrard would often attempt, but not necessarily manage. Um, and... But he could also, you know, push drive forwards himself with these quick interchange passes. Um, and De Bruyne seems to have that composure. And you get it a lot in, in different sports, you know, talking about the players who just seem to have that extra bit of time when they're in possession to think and to pick the correct option. And De Bruyne, to me, has that more than anybody else. And while... From an attacking perspective, Leroy Sana, Gabriel Jesus, Aguero, Raheem Sterling, who is playing extraordinarily well at the moment. Yeah, I think five goals to this point, right? 
yeah, the Daily Mail must be apoplectic. Um, he, you know, the, those those attacking talents who are wonderful players, they're they're being released and and allowed the the space and the time to do what they do by the creativity of De Bruyne and Silva further back, uh, and also the efforts of of the uh, the fullbacks. Um, and it, it's just created this kind of scintillating attacking environment. And you can watch those those players and really enjoy what they're capable of. I think with United, to bring it back to them for a moment, what I enjoy from that is much more how a team is functioning. Um, and and to see even players like Ashley Young again, you know, yeah. still cropping up year hey, after year. He keeps year. coming back. He does, you know, Antonio Valencia. They're two fullbacks um, in the game against Southampton. Where, you know, I have to be honest, I think my team were were pretty unlucky. But, um, you know, both both Valencia and Ashley Young had superb games. Fellaini had a superb game. These these are players that have been reintegrated, not just into into a kind of an eleven that take the pitch, but into a squad, into a mentality of of winning. And I think you're right. I think the positivity of the fans does have an impact there. Um, and, and they're a team that are playing with confidence, but they're playing as a team. Uh, and it's it's very, very exciting. Okay. Um, we went on a little bit of a tangent there. Let's bring it back to Spurs and Swansea. Um, and what seemed clear from the video that we made about that game uh, was the, that Swansea had identified where Spurs most likely like to play in an attacking sense. And in fact, you describe Tottenham's attackers as clustered around the right half space area at one point. I wanted to ask if, is this because too many of their players are looking to drop off into some of the same spaces or does this actually work for them in games sort of filling out one area of of the attacking quarter? I think it works for them. And I think, I think the, the proof of the pudding is in the eating in that regard. And, you know, they, this is how they tend to play. Uh, and, and generally speaking, it gets results for them. I think it gets results in two ways. Firstly, because by bringing those players into that area, they are able to play between the defensive line and the midfield line that the opposition has set up. And they have players like Kane, like Ericsson, like Deli Ali, who are particularly adept at playing short passing triangles with one another and then one of those players bursting into space. Um, and they are seeking to pull the opposition, particularly the opposition back line, out of position and towards them to cut off those quick interchanges of passing. That then creates a space in behind that they can burst into. What it also does is it creates space not just in the uh, horizontal um, sort of the, the line of the penalty area, the line of the halfway line, if if you will, but also the, the vertical, so the half space or the wide space or the central space. If you drift out slightly to the side, you're pulling the opposition team with you. What that either does is it creates a space on the opposite side of the pitch. So if you can recycle the ball quickly through your midfield axis, then your fullbacks will have a lot of space on the far side of the pitch, which Spurs do very, very well. Or it creates a space down the centre. And then you've got someone like um, Dembele that can burst into that space um, and create problems there as well. Or you can have 
say the opposition fullback or sorry the your fullback on the opposite side or your winger on the opposite side tuck into that space so it's all about manipulating how the opposition occupy their defensive space and one of the ways of doing that is to cluster your players together one of the other ways of doing that obviously is to move the ball quickly through wide spaces and get the opposition to try and sort of pendulum across one way or the other but this this is how Spurs do it and I suspect they do it because that particularly that attacking three of Kane and Eriksen and Deli Ali are so good in tight spaces they're so good at controlling it they're so good at playing little one-twos with each other they'll often squeeze through anyway yeah you know Deli Ali particularly I think is is exceptional at that Kane is more likely to be the one who then tries to to kind of pull away and, mm-hmm. and take a, a pass, but they're all very good at it. Swansea and, and Burnley were the given examples of uh, two teams who set up very well against Spurs. I'm wondering if uh, it's possible for for any team, you know, of a reasonable quality to do this, or if there's um, specific, you know, player roles or. Generally speaking, what are the key tenets of the of the counter system, and is it possible for any team to set up like Swansea and Burnley did? I guess it's possible for any team to. Um, I mean, I think there's almost a question of mentality at play here. If you're a team that is, you know, expected to be lower down in the table, um, then maybe you're in some ways actually more accepting of the fact that you might change your system to counter specific threats. And I think it's, say for example, it's one of the things that's interesting about about Mourinho is that you know his teams, generally speaking, aren't, and yet he's still very happy to do that. But if you're someone like Sean Dyche, who's competitive and slightly aggressive, I suppose, and, and looking to to close down and thinking, right, you know, we're here to spoil the party, as it were, then it's probably easier for you to to adjust. Whereas if you're, you know, an Antonio Conte or an Arsene Wenger and, and you've got a set of players and a system that you think should be able to beat anybody, yeah, there might be tweaks, but it's unlikely that you'll adjust how you play quite so much. And I yeah. think it, it, it poses a really interesting question for, for sort of mid-table teams. Yes, it does. You know, like a Southampton, for example, or and I think Watford are a team in transition at the moment. Okay, they got thumped by City, but um, who hasn't been thumped by City? Who hasn't been thumped by City? But under Marco Silva, they've got a hugely astute manager, um, and they're starting to play really nicely. And those sorts of teams are in a bit of a quandary. You know, do they against the so-called bigger clubs? Do they? try and impose themselves and try and Mm. dictate the terms or do they play in a more reactive way and think about how they can mitigate what the opposition does do they do they stoke it out or do they uh, Bournemouth it up yeah I guess that's thank you curious way of putting it but yes I mean no I think it's a really crucial point I think I think as teams are in transition you sometimes get to that point where you sense that a team's tactical identity maybe switches over from from reactive to thinking actually we can impose ourselves on any team that we play Mm. and I think when Southampton were at their best 
under Pochettino at times and under Kerman at times, for example, that's what they were doing. Whereas yeah. I think Claude Puel's rebuilding program was a kind of retrenchment on that. Okay, let's go back to being sensible, being defensive, and then trying to generate chances as and when they come. Um, and so really it's about being, you know, having a self-aware manager as well and being being able to know your place, I suppose. Yeah, I, know your place is a, is a curious one. I mean, it's... It sounds a bit harsh to say that, but I, I think... No, I know um, what you mean. I, I, look, I think, I think there's a, a clear... Uh, kind of hierarchy within the league that there are a certain number of clubs we could say six we could say seven that will always pretty much be at the top of that league very very weird scenarios aside like 2015-16 then there are kind of a group of clubs that change because of relegation but are always likely to be toward the bottom third it's the ones in the middle who you kind of look at and think you know so Watford say for example you know how are Watford gonna progress through this season the way that they play and it helps the fact that they've had a new manager since the beginning of the season so you know there's there's immediately a potential gear shift there but will they at a certain point go back to kind of a cagey style relying on Troy Deeney's physicality up front and you know a, 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 a quite a wide defence that, that moves into a five at the back quite easily or are they going to continue to try and play the way they're playing and and impose themselves and that, that balance between creating your own style and going with what has previously worked in order to be safe I guess that's that's to me probably one of the overarching almost kind of philosophical level questions of how should a manager approach what they do with the team I think it's also worth bearing in mind, um, as we say that as well, that the Burnley and Swansea, you know, neither of them managed more than a draw at best with the Tottenham. So whilst this is this is a system, you know, which is it's it's used uh, potentially to stop them from playing, it doesn't mean uh, it's going to beat them. So this isn't you know this isn't handing over the keys to the Tottenham Empire. Um, but finally, Paul Clement. Uh, instituted this system at Swansea, and I wonder um, whether the, you think this has, this has anything to do with the fact that he was an assistant manager and, and a coach for for a long time, and he didn't, you know, sort of stroll straight into management. Obviously, he was he was with Derby as well, but he's also, um, you know, been an assistant at some of the, the biggest clubs in the world, including Real Madrid. Um, and so, I wonder if if you think, you know, having to fulfil those roles has made him a more competent tactician in a way that maybe other Premier League managers aren't necessarily if they you know, walk into a job based on reputation alone? I think he's, I think he's probably more than competent as a tactician. And, and I don't, I'm not disparaging you for phrasing the question in that way. I think it's a really interesting point that as an assistant manager and a coach, he was probably more responsible for that kind of dog game work. by game the, the dog work yeah, kind of the dog work but the, the, <laughs> the sort of sense of of you know okay we're under Ancelotti at, at Real we're preparing to play Barcelona you know strengths and weaknesses of the opposition how might we specifically counter that on the training ground what are we working on as a manager you might be coming up with the ideas behind that um, and I'm sure different managers are hands-on to different degrees. But as an assistant manager or a coach, you're probably literally 
out there on the pitch, moving players into position, saying, right, you stand there when they do this. And so I suspect that, and this is, you know, this is a guess rather than anything else, but I, I suppose an educated one, that he probably finds it easier to think in those terms and to get his players to enact that than maybe a manager who went straight into management and also has all of those other things to think about, you know, kind of overarching ways of playing and recruitment and blah, blah, blah. And I'm sure Clements had to get to grips with that side of things as well. But He's, he's an everyman. I, I, I think he's hugely impressive. But but probably that, that kind of hands-on specific setting up to counter threats is maybe comes more naturally to him because of his background, uh, his coaching background, than it might to other managers. Mm, mm. I find I find that one. I find that one interesting. The route to management, um, Alex. That's that's all we've got today. But thanks very much for joining us, and we'll speak to you again in another couple of weeks. Ah, my pleasure. Speak to you soon. 